Thanks, Jim, for reading scripture today, as always. Good morning. Glad you're all here today. My name is Mark Hoffman. I'm director of worship and one of the elders here. Uh, It's good to be here, and it's good to be back in town. Uh, After having a week off with my family, we uh, moved our son Joshua down to Columbus, Ohio, and he starts his new job down there tomorrow, so we're praying for... um, just a good start for him in this new chapter of his life. And then we tacked on a camping trip at the end of that uh, time, and we just had fun as a family, and we had beautiful weather and uh, just a great time together as a family. Although in the campground, they wouldn't let us run in the campground. They they only let you ran because it was past tense. I was going to wait to see the reaction and then let you know if that was my joke or not. Not my joke. I got that from someone else, but I won't tell you who. But anyway, it's good to be back. Um, we're really thankful for the time off, and, um, and it's especially just an honor to bring the word today. So before we dive in, let me just pray for our time together. Lord, this is your word and no one else's. And Lord, we come here believing and knowing that your desire is to speak to us through it as your people and to shape us into the image of Christ. And so we just pray by the working of your spirit today, Lord, that you would take your word and that you would plant it in our hearts and that they would be prepared to bear fruit for you. And so we are looking to you and trusting you in faith that you would do this today, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the story of Jesus healing the two men with demons that Jim just read from Matthew chapter 8, it's also found in two other places in the New Testament. So there are four books, perhaps you know in the Bible, that tell about the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, and we call those four books the Gospels. Those are literally the good news of Jesus. And the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and those are the first four books of the New Testament. So the story we're looking at today, it actually appears in three out of the four Gospels. It's in Matthew, and it's in Mark, and it's in Luke. And I I don't want to jump around a lot. I would like our passage today from Matthew to be kind of our main passage, but I still want to supplement from one of those. And so we'll be looking at Mark chapter 5 verses 1 through 20 also. So if you want to find that in your Bibles as well, you can do that and kind of keep a finger in both places. But let me read Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, and you'll see that it fills in some of the gaps that Matthew left out. Mark 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, And cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. 
And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to see Jesus... And saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how much he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. So when you read these two passages back to back from Matthew and Mark and compare them, you might be thinking, now, okay, wait a minute, these stories don't line up exactly. I thought we believed that the Bible was true and accurate, and if the Bible is inerrant, if it's infallible, how can there be all these discrepancies here? Like, what's the setting, really? Where did this happen? Was it the country of the Gadarenes? Or was it the Gerasenes? Or was it the Gergesenes, like the ESV footnote says? Like, which one is it? What's going on here? Well, that last verse that we just read from Mark gives us a little bit of a clue because it mentions the Decapolis. That's literally the ten cities. Ten cities. And it was a region of cities on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River. And this was primarily a... Gentile area, and the herd of pigs would give us a clue that this is a Gentile area. Um, Jews wouldn't have eaten meat from pigs, right? So uh, this was definitely a Gentile region. And uh, it was mostly Gentiles living in a Greek and Roman culture. Geographically, it corresponds roughly uh, with the New Testament region of Gilead and includes what is today northwest Jordan and southern Syria. And in this area, Gadara was a larger city with greater regional authority. And within that region, Gerasa was a smaller village. I don't know, do we have that map there? There it is. So as far as the different city names go, the different gospel authors were likely just trying to communicate to their respective audiences differently with what they would have been more familiar with. So like, if one of you asked me, Hey, Mark, where do you live? I would say, well, I live in Rolling Meadows. I'm down there on Owl Drive. Just, you know, go to the city hall and turn left. But if I'm visiting my in-laws in southwest Missouri and I meet someone there and they say, Hey, Mark, where are you from? Well, they probably wouldn't know my name. They would say, Hey, you, where are you from? You don't look like you're from around here. I would say, Well, I'm from Chicago. I'm from the Chicago area, right? They're not going to know what I would explain to you. 
so speaking differently to two different audiences. That's what's happening here likely. You probably also notice that Mark only has one demon-possessed man, while Matthew says there were two. That's a problem on the surface. It's not a problem. This is not an error in the Bible. Likely there were two men. But there was one man in particular that stood out to Mark as being central to the story, and so Mark focused his attention on this one man. As D.A. Carson comments on this passage, he says this, mention of only one by the other gospel writers is not problematic. Not only was one sufficient for the purpose at hand, but where one person is more remarkable or prominent, it's not uncommon for the gospels to mention only that one. And then he gives an example, like, I saw John Smith in town today. I hadn't seen him in years, even though both John and Mary Smith were in fact seen. So that's that's what's happening here as well. And I think it's also helpful for us to just remember that ancient historians just didn't write the same way that modern historians do in their modern textbooks. The ancient historian's aim was to accurately capture the sense of what happened, to communicate it within the, the context of the larger narrative, but they were not trying to meticulously reconstruct word-for-word quotations or construct intricate timelines of events. That was not their goal. And that's just the difference between ancient historians and modern ones. And it helps us to be aware of that as we read the gospel narratives. So hopefully with some of all of that background uh, confusion cleared up, we can move into Matthew chapter 8. And as we heard last week, Jesus had just calmed a storm, and the disciples, he and the disciples were crossing over the Sea of Galilee, and now they've arrived on land, and it's probably nighttime as they get off the boat in this region on the other side of the sea, and Matthew 8.28 tells us that two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. They were fierce. They were extremely violent. And as Mark describes the one man, he says he wrenched chains apart and he broke shackles in pieces and he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. These demon-possessed men were in a very bad way. So we should probably pause and talk about demons a little bit too. So what are demons? I liked this. Sam Imadi writes in the Lexham Survey of Theology. Demons are fallen angels who have rebelled against God and continue to propagate evil in the world. Scripture indicates that the demons were once angels who rebelled against God and followed Satan into disobedience and sin. Like the angels, demons are intelligent beings who possess great power, though Demons are evil spirits who are invisible to humans. They sometimes appear in Scripture as possessing humans and speaking through them. Their primary activities in the world are to engage in cosmic warfare with the angels, to tempt people to sin, and to deceive the world with lies that blind people to spiritual truth. Scripture also speaks of demons physically assaulting people and even possessing people to do their will, as we see in this passage. 
Jesus encountered a number of demons, which may reveal that they were highly active in opposing Christ's incarnate ministry. So these demon-possessed men, they come before Jesus. They cry out in verse 28, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And what's the first thing you notice? These demons know who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. Has anyone in Matthew up to this point recognized Jesus as Son of God? Well, yes. The first person to declare that Jesus is the Son of God is God the Father himself at Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, when the Father says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The next person to call Jesus the Son of God is Satan. In Matthew chapter 4, when he's tempting Jesus in the wilderness, saying, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And the next instance in Matthew is right here. As these demons say, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? We won't see any human beings acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God until Matthew chapter 14 when Jesus walks on the water and then gets back in the boat and all of the disciples worship him saying, truly, you are the Son of God. But so far in the people, all the people in Matthew so far have not gotten to that point yet. But these demons, they know. In fact, they have always known that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So what do they ask of Jesus? Have you come here to torment us before the time? It's interesting if you look at the word order in the original Greek. It's a little different. What the demons are literally saying is, have you come here before the time to torment us? The emphasis being on Before the time. So if we jump ahead in Matthew just a little bit, actually quite a bit, to chapter 25. Jesus is telling his disciples about the time. The end of the age. And he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. These demons know the plan. They know that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will come in final judgment and cast them into a place of eternal fire and torment. And they're whining and complaining about it. Jesus, you're early. It's not time. 
I mean, we know what we have coming to us, but come on, it's not time. It's before the time. You're early. It's before the time. So then in verse 31, it says that the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. In verse 32, he says to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the waters. And I think this illustrates an important takeaway, our first takeaway for today, which is that Satan is a destroyer. He's a destroyer. He is a killer along with his demons. He's all about destroying what God has made and desecrating his good works. 1 Peter 5.8 says, To be sober-minded and be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. These demons had possessed these men, and where were they living? In the tombs, in a place of the dead. They were like the walking dead. Their lives were over. Destroyed. And then as soon as the demons leave these men and enter the pigs, what happens to the pigs? They kill them. Literally a mad rush to their destruction. We may not see demon possession like this every day in the time and place in which we live. But that doesn't mean that dark forces don't exist in this world. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul reminds us, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Now, this might seem a little scary, you know, a bit unsettling, right? I mean, are we targets in the middle of a spiritual battle? Yes. Yes, we are. And yes, Satan is a destroyer, but there's another very important takeaway, and that is that Jesus is king, and he has authority over all. When we finished the Sermon on the Mount, remember that? It wasn't that long ago. At the end of the previous chapter in Matthew, what did Matthew tell us? He said that when Jesus finished all of these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had what? Authority. Authority. And now in this very next chapter, chapter 8, what have we seen? Jesus demonstrating his authority. In Matthew chapter 8 alone, what authority has he demonstrated? Well, he's... He's demonstrated authority over sickness and disease. 
He cleansed a leper. He took the fever away from Peter's mother. He healed the centurion's servant without even going to see the servant. He just spoke and the servant was healed. I mean, talk about remote work, right? Jesus has authority over sickness and disease. And beyond that, Jesus has authority over the natural world. After all, he had just calmed a storm on the way here. He literally rebuked the wind and the waves and they obeyed. And and I love the story that that Drew referenced last week when he said that the wind and the waves recognized Jesus' voice because it was the same voice that spoke them into existence. Jesus has authority over the natural world, and Jesus has authority over the supernatural world. He has supreme authority even over a legion of demons. That's thousands of demons, as Mark tells us. And they're cowering before Jesus because they know that he has a complete authority over them. He is the Son of God. Just a little bit back in Matthew chapter 8, verse 16, it says that people brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word. Just one word, kind of like, go. Jesus has authority over the supernatural world. So yes, Satan is a destroyer. He and his demons are hell-bent on destruction. But Jesus is king, and he has authority over all. So now all of this has transpired. Jesus encounters these demon-possessed men. He has an exchange with the demons. He casts them out with a single word. They enter into the herd of pigs, which rush down a slope to their death in the sea. And then what happens? What's the reaction? Verses 33 and 34 say that the herdsmen fled. Going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, All the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Wait, what? (laughs) They begged him to leave? I mean, this was an amazing healing. The whole city should be coming out and begging him to heal their sick, right? Instead, they insist that he needs to go. In Mark uh, 5, verse 15, it tells us that the people were afraid. One commentator notes that while Jews may have looked at a miracle worker like Jesus and considered him to be a prophet, Gentiles would be more likely to be afraid, suspicious, like he's a, um, a magician or a sorcerer. But in addition to this, though, I think D.A. Carson is on to something when he comments this. The pig's stampede dramatically proved that the former demoniacs had indeed been freed. But the loss of the herd became a way of exposing the real values of the people in the vicinity. They preferred pigs to persons, swine to the Savior. This was all just too much for them. Jesus, this is scary. We don't understand this. It's costing us. Those were our pigs. 
It's disrupting the way we live. Jesus, please just leave. Just, we just need you to leave. So Matthew tells us that they begged him to leave the region, and he did. He didn't preach a sermon. He didn't ask for them to bring their sick out so he could heal them. He didn't ask to stay the night. They asked him to leave, and he did. And that's where Matthew's account ends. But there is more in Mark. And I think it's a big reason why he has focused his account on this one demon-possessed man. In Mark 5, verses 18 through 20, we see that Jesus is getting in the boat to head back, like they asked him to, head back across the sea. And then here's what happens. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but he said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how much he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, the ten cities, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. So this leads us to some more takeaways, two more. One of them, there is no one who is so lost that Jesus can't save them. No one. Jesus just dropped into the middle of a pagan culture, was confronted by an unclean, buck-naked, tomb-dwelling, pork-eating, self-mutilating, demon-possessed man, a Gentile. And Mark 5, 6, it tells us that when this guy saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Why in the world would a person like this run towards Jesus and fall before him. Does that make any sense? Unless that's exactly what Jesus wanted. And with just one word, Jesus has drawn this man, well, with no words, he drew him to himself. And with one word, this man possessed by a legion of demons, he's immediately transformed, sitting there, clothed, And in his right mind, there is no one who is so lost that Jesus cannot save them. Jesus goes to great lengths to save his people from their sins. Jesus got into a boat, calmed a storm, crossed the sea in the middle of the night, making this one special trip all the way across to make this one disciple, this guy, If you think about it even more than that, Jesus made a special trip to be born, to take on human flesh, fully God and fully man. You might say the Son of God and the Son of Man. To live the perfect and sinless life that we could never live, to take the death penalty of sin that we deserved taking it to the cross, rising in victory over sin and death so that by faith in him we might have forgiveness and eternal life. 
that we might have the release from sin. Jesus goes to great lengths to save his people from their sins. And if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I am glad you're here. Because through his word and through this story, I believe Jesus is calling you to himself today. And it doesn't matter who you are, and it doesn't matter what you've done, because there is no one who is so lost that Jesus can't save them. And here's our last point. When the demons were confronted by Jesus and wanted to go into the herd of pigs, what did they do? The text says that they, they begged him. Or when the, the whole city came out and they wanted Jesus to leave their region, the text says they begged him. And when Jesus was leaving the man that he healed, what did he do? He begged him. He begged him, can I go with you? So our last takeaway is this. We are all beggars at the feet of King Jesus. All of us. We've already established that Jesus is king. He has authority over all. And now we just have to acknowledge that we're all beggars at the feet of King Jesus. The question is, what are you begging for? Consider it. Are you like the demons? They acknowledge Jesus' authority. He's the Son of God. They know He's going to pass ultimate judgment, but they just wanted to keep up their shenanigans. Come on, Jesus, it's not time yet. Just let us keep making trouble. We're having a good time. Is that what you're begging of Jesus? Yeah, Jesus, I know... You're in charge, and you're going to judge the living and the dead and all that. But I'm having too much fun right now. It's not time yet. I've got a lot of time in this life still. Just, why don't you just send me over there, and you can keep doing your thing over here, Jesus, and, and I'll be good. Just like, let me keep doing my thing. Is that what you're begging, Jesus? At times, it may be. Or... Like the herdsmen and the people of the city, yeah, Jesus, you know, we have seen your miraculous power. We've seen what you can do, that you can save, and that is really good. But following you seems kind of scary, it's kind of unpredictable, and it's definitely costly. It disrupts the way I really, we've got this kind of way of life thing going here that we really don't want disrupted. So can you just keep your distance? Why don't you just leave us here and you can go um, and then you won't shake up our lives too much. At times, is that what you're begging Jesus? Or are we like the man who is healed? at the feet of Jesus, recognizing all that Jesus Christ has done for us. That he's gone to great lengths to save you. And you're on your knees before him, begging 
to follow him as your Savior and as your Lord. We're all beggars at the feet of King Jesus. And Mark's account tells us that this man begged Jesus that he might be with him. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 19, says, He did not permit him, but he said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how much he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. King Jesus, with authority over all, has made a disciple, and now he's sending him out. He tells his brand new disciple to go. Go. Go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. It should remind us of the very end of this gospel. The Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. After Jesus' death and resurrection, just before ascending to heaven, he tells his disciples to go. But first, what does he remind them? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is king, and he has authority over all. And what is the king's command? He says, go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As this man miraculously healed and wanting to follow Jesus, asked, begged, to be with Jesus. Jesus didn't permit him to be with him, but he didn't need to because Jesus ultimately has promised to be with us. He says, I am with you always to the end of the age until he returns in power and glory to judge Satan and his demons, the living and the dead. Until that day, Jesus is with us. So yes, Satan is a destroyer. And we must be alert. We must be strong in the Lord. We must take up his armor and stand firm. Remembering that scripture says he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Why? Because Jesus is king and he has authority over all. And because of this, we hear Christ's call to go and to make disciples emboldened, knowing that he is with us and that there is no one who is so lost that Jesus can't save. So as beggars at the feet of our gracious king, Jesus, may we submit to his authority in all that we are and all that we do, begging of him that his kingdom come that his will be done in our lives, in our families, in our church, in our community, and in our world. Amen. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. And the reminders of your presence and your power. And Lord, we come before you to beg of you in prayer, Lord, for healing for those in our fellowship who are suffering from sickness because you are a healer. Lord, we pray for continued health and recovery for Paul Borvig and for Jerry O'Shaughnessy. Lord, we pray for your comfort for the family of Alan Weezer as they mourn his passing. God, we pray that you would draw near and give them the peace that surpasses all understanding. Lord, we pray your blessing on the people of this church. We pray for family businesses and livelihoods that you would bless them and provide through them. Lord, we pray for all the kids as they're going back to school now and we just ask that you would give them a good start to the school year. Let them know truly that you are with them wherever they go. Lord, we pray for our church. Lord, we're thankful that Awana and our partnership with the Chinese church is happening. We pray that you would bless that and you would touch kids' lives with the gospel through it. We pray for our church in this transition, Lord. We thank you for all that you are doing in our midst. Lord, keep us close to you. Keep us seeking you. Keep us trusting you. Help us to find joy in this journey that we are in. Lord, we are at your feet begging these things. But we ask them in faith knowing that you have authority over all. And so for that, we thank you. We pray it in your saving name. Amen.